Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Bow Hunter Chronicles podcast brought to you by Huntworth. Huntworth bringing you quality hunting clothing and packs at a price you deserve. Check them out at huntworthgear.com. Man, this uh, turkey season has come to a close for us. I suppose if you're listening to this on Wednesday as it comes out, um, there's still one day left. May get out tomorrow, but um, <laughs> shot shot at three turkeys uh, with a bow, uh, no blind, uh, no turkeys uh, were uh, harvested, uh, by me. Um, Frank missed one with a rifle. Um, and John hasn't been out anymore since the last podcast. I spent all Memorial day weekend crawling, chasing, uh, hunting turkeys had a blast and, uh, couldn't, couldn't bring one home with me. So, uh, it's been super fun. Uh, the hunt stuff continues to, uh, impress me with uh, the Durham pants, and um, they have, uh, well, I guess I was using that Shelton hoodie uh, with the built-in face mask. Super easy. Didn't forget the face mask. Really enjoyed that. Um, had Jake's at, you know, from the last podcast, Jake's at, uh, like, less than five yards. Didn't know I was there. Had turkeys right up on us uh, this weekend. Same deal. Uh, that Tarnan pattern. Uh, it's probably quickly becoming one of my favorites and uh, can't say enough stuff about that. And we're going to be giving away some more of that stuff with our Patreon giveaway coming up here. Uh, I guess this will come out uh, tomorrow. Uh, so we're getting into June. Uh, we'll probably announce the winners at the Total Archery Challenge for the Patreon giveaways. And, you know, our sponsors are tremendous. If you're going to be at... Uh, Tack in Michigan. Uh, many, many, many of our sponsors are going to be there. Latitude's going to be there. Uh, this week's guest, 
Jake Bush is going to be up there. Uh, we got Greg Litzinger coming up there. He's with the Latitude guys as well. Um, really, really looking forward to that. Um, the guys from Zinger and Kanadi Arrows are going to be up there. Genesis 3D Printing is going to be up there. And uh, I don't know if Jared from Vitalize is going to be up there or not. But, uh, you know, we're going to only continue to partner with people that uh, you know we truly believe in and that give back and you know these guys these companies uh you know we don't mess with any companies um that don't kind of fit the same mold as as we are and uh one more thing i believe that the big shot uh target guys are going to be um having some targets out there on the course this year. Uh, I was talking to Brandon and I think they've got some targets on the course. Um, so we'll showcase them once we see them and congrats to his dad, big Al uh, harvesting a bear uh, over this past week. So awesome there. They give away one of their uh, 3d targets. Genesis 3d has got some stuff to give away. Lucky buck. I got 10 buckets of lucky buck going up to our, our cabin in the UP. Um, I'm going to get some cameras out and see what we've got going on up there. The vitalized seed is coming in great in Wisconsin. Looking forward to seeing what that looks like up there in the UP. Latitude gives away a set of their sticks. Huntworth with, uh, I believe it's going to be the same Durham and Shelton hoodie that I just mentioned. Spartan Forge. Um, I did draw a Kansas tag, so I've been all over Spartan Forge trying to figure out where I can hunt, what's available for us, and uh, really excited uh, about that. With Spartan Forge, you can go to SpartanForge.ai, use code Bowhunter to save 25%, uh, and they just have the most incredible imaging, uh, super, super awesome imaging, and they got the the AI uh, portion of it, kind of telling you when to be in the stand, uh, what's going to be the best days for your area, uh, where kind of to hunt and more to come on that. So, uh, super excited that Genesis, uh, 3d, like I said, he's going to be up there. Uh, Austin and hope are going to be up at the total archery challenge. I think on Saturday zinger, those guys are usually set up right on the practice range, uh, with their Kanadi arrows this year. So very, very, uh, happy to be working with them. They give away a dozen arrows, um, and some zingers, you know, those guys are always doing that. And then vitalize seed, Jared, uh, they give away some of their seed as well. So, you know, just so much. And I got to give a shout out to, uh, William Ritchie. He's been on a podcast guest, uh, a bunch of times, uh, another guy who's a serious guy. I put him right up there with, uh, Jake Bush. He's doing some great stuff. Um, I think it's called M I dreaming, uh, M Michigan, like M I dreaming, uh, on YouTube, uh, doing some great stuff over there. He's trying to get some more kids involved, um, doing some video and doing some stuff. And, uh, he signed up for Patreon. So I got to get him a, a shirt and some swag. And then, uh, Nate Gold's, He's been on Patreon and uh, kind of fell off his back uh, on Patreon with us and just killed his first time this weekend. So I was literally like crawling through the brush uh, with a turkey at full strut in front of us. And uh, when we took a break there, trying to figure out how to make our next move on this turkey, he sent me a, a text with a picture of a time that he had killed that morning. So uh, congrats, Nathan, on that. And, you know, with, with our Patreon group, we're creating a community, we're creating a family, um, getting ready for our Patreon hunt, our 
cookout up there at the Total Archery Challenge. And we've got uh, Bowhunter Chronicles West uh, for spring bear hunt. We're, we're working on um, doing that. And that's all kind of uh, organically through the group. These things have come up. Oh, and uh, I got a pack for the one-shot group that they had started. Um, I got to draw that winner, too. So, um, you know, that's just a great group of guys if you're looking for a, a hunting community, uh, some guys to bounce ideas off of. Uh, we got the Marco Polo group. Uh, really, really excited uh, about that. But this podcast with Jake Bush is uh, is a good one for this time of year, for summer. Um, and then once you listen to this podcast, you can go check out his podcast, which is um the the latitude in sessions podcast and great super synthesized high level information over there and uh then you can see him up at the till archery challenge and uh, pick his brain a little bit further on some of that stuff Uh, i know you guys are going to like this episode uh the patreon thing's not for you that's fine uh just tell someone about it tell someone about this episode And uh, as always, thanks for listening. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Bowhunter Chronicles podcast. And we've got uh, a guy who's been on the podcast a few times. uh, Met it's it's always fun when it's a guy that you've inter uh, interacted with that you've um, met in person. That it's not this uh, first date type thing, Um, and the guy just happens to be like you know one of the foremost big buck killers of our era the new generation and uh he rolls his eyes uh jake bush is on the podcast once again with a with a newfound i don't know dedication to this uh outdoor space that we live in so not only is he putting his crazy amount of uh focus and intensity into killing big bucks um, he's also now a podcast host, um, adding on to the YouTube and the video type stuff. So, um, how are you doing, Jake? I'm doing really good, Adam. Thanks for having me on the show. I really appreciate you bringing on, bringing me on here, man. Well, I figured I'd never get a chance to be on the, uh, Latitude In Session podcast because it's hey, like, we're working on that. it's the, it's about tactics. It's about really really synthesizing down um kind of like the high level conversations and um it it speaks to a lot of guys that are on all levels i think the guys like myself that are that are working at it um get really intrigued uh listening to the conversations with those guys and it's it's fun that you you know the the handful of podcasts that are out thus far um, or a lot of them are with guys that I've known and met and hung out with. So when, when they talk, it's, it's really fun to hear, um, their perspective when they're out, um, hunting with you because it's a, it's a different style. Um, how is that going for you? The, well, let's just say, so since maybe the first of the year or so you, you're full time working with, uh, the guys at latitude, correct? Yeah, I took a full-time job March 1st with them. And what is that like? So to go from this 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 guy who is I don't want to say like so dedicated, but I almost like regimented, I would say, in like I 
have a job that's structured so that I get these days off. I spend this time in the woods. This is how my life is structured to, I know that you're a guy from military background structure. This is what's got to happen. I also know the guys over at Latitude and uh, I love their direction. I love their creativity. Maybe one of them has structure, but I wouldn't say that that that's the most structured group of individuals I've dealt with. So how's that been? So it's been, uh, it's been a learning curve for me, but I'm, I'm embracing it the best I can. So there's new ideas popping up every day and they pop up all over the place and they're, they're really great. I mean, we have a bunch of really analytical and really creative minds at work in this whole process, kind of putting this whole latitude thing together. And it's, uh, it's just really cool to be a part of that. I'm very honored to be a part of it. And I'm, I'm definitely embracing it. It is definitely a change. Um, I would say that I am going from a very structured, like straightened path, like career path. And like, I, I based everything around that, right? Like I got the job that had the 12 hour shifts to give me the days off and the right amount of time off every year. So I could scout the days I needed to and put the miles in that I was trying to get to and everything else. And I've kind of had to take a step back from that. And I think that it's it's a healthy step back and it was the right time to make that move anyways. You know, I have a son, um, I have a fiance, like I'm working on a lot of things here and I think that I needed to take that step back. So I kind of just jump started that for me. And on the flip side of that, I've also got to spend a lot more time out of state with these guys and use it as, you know, like we're on a work trip and we're getting content we're filming these in sessions and I've got to go to some awesome States. You know, I went out to New Jersey with Greg Litzinger, uh, you guys actually, depending on when this podcast airs, there's going to be an in session with Ryan Glitzky coming out in the mountains of Pennsylvania, which is awesome. I did a podcast with him. I've been out there with Alex Chop in a couple different states. I've been down in Kentucky with Chris Leppert and Josh Luck. Like we've been all over the country scouting and trying to find deer and putting cameras up and really just having a good time. And so, I'm very blessed to even have that opportunity and uh I'm really excited to just keep the ball rolling. So in doing that in in changing what you're doing how has that like shifted your mindset? And this I I don't want to pass my bad juju on to you, right? But it seems like now it's almost like you have that opportunity to be more human, I guess. You know, so for us regular guys and, and you know, the the nine to fivers or the weekend warriors that are still super focused on killing deer and, and listening to guys like yourself, you know, the, the Dan and faults and the, the, the guys on that level of obsession, I guess, like we're, we're that's where you would see okay, Jake only has one hobby. Like his life is white tail deer hunting. And now while you're doing all that same time, all all that same stuff, but it's here, it's there, it's here, it's there. Do you feel like this year may be more difficult um, because you're not so focused on a certain area? Because I know I've heard you, I've heard many other guys say, you need to know the area inside and out. So if you bump the deer off of here, he goes over there. And 
if you're not putting in all the miles all the time, like let's say that you have, you know, 200 miles, 300 miles on your boots, but, you know, 30 of them are in Pennsylvania, 50 of them are in Ohio where you live and the rest of them are scattered out the Midwest. Does that put you at a disadvantage? Like a guy like me who maybe has 10 spots and I've got 50 miles on, but it's five here, five here, five here, five there. Well, that's a really good question. And that's something that I've played along with in my head quite a bit, you can imagine. But, uh, but I think that overall, yes, it's going to, it's definitely going to be detrimental to the amount of deer in that class that I'm chasing that I'm going to find. Like, I just don't think I'm going to find as many of them, but what I do have is I'm starting to build up really good historical data here in Ohio. And, you know, the first four years I was down here, I was really working hard to try to just learn the land as best as possible. And at this point I've covered a lot of ground. I mean, if you draw a circle around my house, like within two and a half, three hours, like I've pretty much been on that ground and tore it apart pretty good. So I would say that I've, I've become pretty intimate with a lot of these spots. And I think that I have pretty good like annual data of where I need to run cameras and things like that. And like, I don't have to, I don't feel like I have to go out and spend the same amount of time and miles in the spring, like really dialing in a spot because I already know where all the beds are and where the food sources are and everything else in a lot of these systems. Now it's, it's turning into more of put a camera in there and then just get the inventory you need of that area. And if a deer that you're after is in there, then you already know how to make the play. Like, and it's, it might not be perfect, but like, I, I know of a bunch of white oak flats in these systems and red oak flats and things like that. And I'm, I'm really just waiting for that to heat up again. Like when that specific area heats up, it will, ho- they'll hold good deer. And so I think that that's part of it is like taking a step back and saying, okay, you know, you've ran yourself into the ground pretty good over the last couple of weeks. Let's, uh, let's just try to really dial in and focus on very specific things now. And then I would say that, you know, on the flip side of that, the other thing that I've really thought about a lot is my standards in Ohio. And I've had like extremely high standards over the last few years and we'll see how that plays out. Uh, I have less time to really dive into it now and like beyond the career change, it's, it's really the family thing too. And I'm just realizing probably later than I should have the importance of family for me. And it's so, it's so important for me to be a good family man to my siblings, to the fiance, to my son, to, you know, all my friends, like I just want to be present too. So I think it was everything just met, like the stars aligned at the right time for me to just take a step back and say, okay, like hunting is super important, but it doesn't have to be the only thing in your life that matters. And, uh, and I, so, so I'm okay with that. You know, if I, I would say that like last year I found really good deer and I didn't chase those deer because I was after like the deer, you know, we talked about the deer and that's great. And I'll probably get back into that again someday, but for a while, I'm just I, like my top three to five bucks I find are probably going to be targets for a couple of years, just because I don't have the time I did. And to be honest with you, like I want to focus on some other things. So devil's advocate here let's and granted i don't think that you should care what other people think however i think anybody that passes 150 inch deer because they're 
after this certain deer has, and I think yours is probably on the lower end of the spectrum, an ego, right? To a degree, you have to. Because if you didn't have an ego, you would take what you can get or forgot you excited. But you say, well, I can, I know that I can kill a bigger deer. I know that I know where they live. I know what they do. So coming off of a year where you didn't kill anything. And now where you're saying, we got to dance around you got to make all this content and all this stuff. And now you're saying, well, my standards are going to be a little bit lower. Like, what do you say to that guy? Because all those things come, come together. And this is just devil's advocate, you know. Have you ever been overwhelmed by the hundreds of food plot seed mixes out there? Well, you are not alone. And Vitalized Seed has developed a seed program that takes the guesswork out of food plotting. Vitalized Seed has two core mixes, the Nitro Boost and Carbon Load, to keep it simple. Nitro Boost is their spring-summer food plot mix, and Carbon Load is the fall plot mix, each having a diverse mix of over a dozen different seed types that are highly attractive to whitetail. Food plotting made simple, but it gets even better. Each mix provides necessary nutrients to the soil, making for better plots each season and saving you money by needing less Roundup and less fertilizer each season. The 1-2 system simplifies your food plots just how nature intended. Vitalize Seed. Make biology work for you. Order now at VitalizeSeed.com. No, I totally get it. I think that Throughout every hunter's career, if you will, that's probably not the best term, but every hunter's career, they're, what they try to get out of it's going to change. And for a while, I, I can I can tell you that it, in my head anyways, it's it's never been ego-based. It's Or, or I would have killed a deer last year, right? Like I would have went out and tried, like I had a, a 160, for example, that I could have chased and he was a three-year-old and he was acting pretty dumb. But like, I just really wanted to, push myself to the limits, if you will. And that's kind of what my, what I was doing for a few years is really just pushing myself to the limits and just seeing like, Hey, what can you come up with? And can you get it done or not? Like, are you, can you figure, can you dig down deep enough and figure out how to go and kill that deer? Like, do you have what it takes? And it was really a personal mission for me. And, you know, for now I get the opportunity with the new job to be able to travel a bunch of States and, and kill deer in a bunch of States. So in the back of my head, I'm thinking, you know, what'd be really cool instead of just killing like one giant in Ohio, it'd be real cool to kill like three or four bucks in three or four different states. Like that'd be, that'd be a cool thing. And they don't have to be giant deer, but like three or four good deer in three or four states sounds like a good little challenge for me. So I'm just finding different ways to do that. And I'm, I'm just, it really, it really comes down to, for me, what things I have going on in life at the time. And, you know, if I ever have the opportunity to get back in that giant chase mode, it, it, it could happen this year, man. I might turn up a giant and completely change my mentality and say, you know what? I do have a giant or two or three giants that I can go after. I'm going to go for it and just see what I can come up with. I'll just have to have to play it by ear, but I'm not going to like a good mature deer is a good mature deer. And especially taking a step back and, and, deciding for myself like i got so many other wonderful things going on in life like a, killing a good deer and then spending 10 extra days with my son sounds like a pretty good fall to me to be honest with you so that's kind of what's going on in the back of my head you know like i know that people will say what they're going to say but at the end of the day like what matters to me is just being enjoying what i'm doing really having fun and just being 
present and a good man to the people that are around me that that I care about and that care about me is more important to me than anything else. Well, and I think that comes with like age and like your position in life and all of all of those things. And it's so easy for the the keyboard commandos to say, well, you know, this, that, the other thing. And that's unfortunately the the world that we live in, especially as you, you know, have now a career in in content, right? And we talked a little bit about this before the podcast, but it's sometimes and I don't I don't think that you're in a situation like this, but sometimes there are requirements, right? So you have to produce, you know, there are measurables, whether it's photos or, you know, you got to have these many episodes or, or whatever. And to be able to try and get the best, most helpful content. And this is one of the things we had talked about earlier on the, uh, before the podcast was getting the information out there to help people. And it isn't, uh, one of the things that I really like about listening to the episodes that you've done so far is a lot of times it's really easy to listen to podcast hosts who uh, maybe don't have all of the skills and they try to talk on the level of the guest and, you know, talk about their experiences when you're on the, you're listening or you're tuned in for the guests themselves. And I think on your podcast, you do like the opposite of that is you are asking very uh, humble and down to earth questions. You're talking on the same level as the guest having a conversation, but you're trying to get that information and you're, I feel like some of it, you probably already know the answers to, but you're asking the questions in a way that for the listener, how is it being on the other side of the microphone at this point? To be honest with you, I really enjoy it. And I think a lot of what you just said, like I, I, Definitely understand that. I've got some feedback about that. And I think it's more of a natural thing, to be honest. I've always been very curious and so interested in learning about deer and different deer hunters. And like, like I can look at, I can name off 10 deer hunters that are my heroes, man. Like I just look up to them and I want to know everything about their strategies and what they do and what they eat for breakfast. And like, you know, I could go on for days, but so for me, it's just recognizing Really, I hope that what I can always do is take a step back, say, you know, Jake, you don't know that much. Like there's a whole world of hunting out there and like you're in this little niche and you have like one thing that you're really like a lot and that you focused on. And there's so many different tactics and there's so many different people out there that have all these different, you know, great strategies and things that they do and just take a, take a seat. And just really try to learn as much as possible from every one of them. And that's one thing that I just try to do is like, I want to, I want to start out with the basics and then I want to work in from that. And as I can, I try to like sprinkle my own information. And anytime that I've had like a relevant experience, I try to just sprinkle that in there a little bit. And it just, you know, it works out pretty good so far, I think. And it helps out that everybody that I've interviewed is, you know, I'm kind of handpicking these guys. It's, it's guys that I've talked to a lot and I really enjoy and I respect them as hunters, but more importantly as, as men. And it's just, it's easy for me to sit back and do that. So 
Yeah, man. I think uh, I, I think that that's kind of the format we're going to stick to. And then, you know, I, I threw in this little Monday episode, which is like we talked about earlier. It's just like a like a 15 minute Q&A. And I'm sure you get the same thing and get a bunch of questions from people. And like, I always try to respond to them through text or through a message. And like, I get a paragraph. And I'm like, this isn't even close to what I need to be telling this guy. So I just figured, you know what, we'll do a 15 minute episode and we'll take like one question every week or maybe even two, depending on how, how well it's received. And we'll just like answer it through a podcast and make it quick and easy. And it's like, there's no intro or anything. Like we just dive right into it. So, so yeah, it's, it's been a lot of fun so far, man. I think I, I just hope that I can uh, keep bringing the information more than anything else. Well, and in this week's podcast, that little Q and a was kind of what I wanted to talk to you about in that. Now you're doing this full time. So you've got all the time in the world during the summer, these months where, you know, John Eberhardt says he's pan fishing or bass fishing or whatever, because he's done, you should be done with all of your scouting by such and such a date, because now we've got vegetation. Now we've got these deer are, are, are in different patterns. They're, they're not doing what they're doing in the hunting season. It's difficult to see the sign and age it and all this stuff. What is it that you're focusing on this time of year? Because of all the people that I would, if I could name, if you get said uh, gun to my head, there's two people, three people that if you ask them what they're doing this weekend, it's going to be deer scouting or whatever, any day, like your name's right at the top of that list. So what is it that you're focusing on throughout from now until the good part of the season, beginning of September, end of August, where now we're going to look for these bucks on pattern and et cetera. Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And for me, it's going to be like most of my boots on the ground scouting has already been done. I've already accomplished that. And there's a little bit that I'll dabble in here and there based on if I, sometimes I like, I'll, I'll get into a spot and I look over the next ridge and I'm like, man, there's a new clear cut back there. That's not on a map yet. Like I got to run over there. And so I get crazy. So I'm not going to tell you, like I never boots on the ground scout this time of year, but for me, it's really just getting all my cameras ready and getting ready to get those out. I put basically every day I have off or I have time right now, I'm going to be running cameras out. And I've went back and forth on my strategy with cameras a lot over the years. And I'm sure people listen to me on podcasts and they're like, man, this guy is like, a, he's changing directions left and right. And it, it kind of is, but it's because I'm evolving myself, right? Like this whole process is constantly evolving. And I really had, I, I, I thought I really had my process dialed down. And last year with the, with EHD rolling through Ohio, my process was totally wrong for that. Would it have been right without EHD? Who knows? I'm not sure. But with EHD, the the ideology that I had where I was like, I'm going to run cameras in five different systems, my top five, and that's it. That sounds great because you're really going to learn those and become intimate with them and have historical data when the food sources align again. But if you have something like EHD roll through and you casted this very narrow net, probably going to miss all the fish. And that's exactly what I did. I just, I missed every, every big deer out there. And so this year, my goal is to just cast that wide net again. I've done really good in Ohio, in New York, a couple different states with casting a very wide net in the summertime with cameras. 
Like instead of running 10 cameras in a hub system, I'll run one down in the bottom on the hub scrape because you're still going to get all the deer in that system going through there. You're just not going to have all of that data. Like you're not going to have like, hey, this deer was here on this day with this wind, with this, you know, all these factors. So you, you, if you're a, if you're a trail camera hunter, that could be detrimental to you because you don't have all the data you want. But if you're a sign hunter and you're going in on the fly and you're mobile hunting, that still works pretty good because all you really need is the photo of that deer. And that's kind of where I'm at, where I like, I just want the one photo. So if I take instead of, instead of like last year where I ran 10 cameras in each hub system, five hub systems this year, I'm going to run cameras in 25, 30, 35, 40 different hubs. And a lot of them are easy to access from the road. So I drive up, I can run in there four or 500 yards, drop a camera down, run back out, go to the next one. It's not like these big giant loops and I can be efficient with placing cameras out. What that does for me is instead of finding, let's say 25 bucks total, five bucks per system. Now I can find a hundred or 150 bucks again, because I have cameras in all these different areas. And then I can fine tune the deer that I want to go after based on that. So you just, you don't have the data, but you have more inventory of deer. And like I said, I went back and back and forth on that. I think that that makes more sense to me because this last year, it's the first year this has ever happened to me where I didn't have a deer to chase. And it took me until January to find a deer to go after. And I mean, I spent, I didn't carry my bow in the woods like 40 days during season because I was just moving cameras around trying to locate a deer because I'd find sign and put a camera up on it. And it would be a two-year-old because the big deer were all dead. And so I just don't want that to happen again. I don't want to I don't ever want to get to an opening day without a target. I just feel like that's crazy. And it just, every, all the scouting I'm doing all spring and summer and everything else, like so much of that is based off of early season because I can just pool that data. So getting caught in a pinch, not having a deer to chase until January was just an absolute nightmare for me. So for me, I'm going to be just putting those cameras out in a bunch of different hub systems. I typically will do that mid June ish. Like I said, I've already got some out, but mid-June-ish through mid-July is when I try to get them out. And then I let those cameras sit until the first week or two of September, and I'll go pull all those. And that'll give me the inventory I need of what deer I can actually chase after. And when I'm in there pulling the cameras, one of the really important things to me is finding the active food sources as well. So I've already scouted the food sources. I know where the white oak flats are. I know where the red oak flats are. I've got all that pretty much figured out. I know where the ag's at. I know where the clear cuts are at, but I want to verify the food sources are hot. Hey, did that cornfield get cut? You know, are those beans still standing? Is that white oak flat finally hot this year because it's been dead the last two years? Do we finally have reds? We haven't had red oaks in three years down here in the areas I hunt. You know, do we have chestnut oaks this year? So I know if I get in a late season pinch, I'll have deer to go after there. There's, is there a new clear cut? Like we talked about earlier, there's all these factors. So I'm trying to verify the food source and then i'm trying to verify the inventory of the deer and i feel like if i can get that i'm really efficient in the first couple of days of the season like if i can if i can go pull a camera september 15th the opener's 10 days out and there's a white oak flat raining and then i check that camera and there's a bit there's a giant on it i'm like man you're in some trouble because chances are this is still going to be hot and you know seven days 10 days and i'm going to be able to come in here and be really close to getting on you and you're already here because of this flat. So this one dries up. 
Well, on the way out, I glassed that other white oak flat and that one isn't dropping yet, but it's got acorns too. And so I know you're going to bounce one bedding area over, which I've already scouted and I'll be rating the game on you over there. So that's, what's kind of going through my head as far as like cameras and inventory. The other thing that I'd spend a ton of time doing is glassing in the summertime. So I'm always trying to glass areas that I can hunt near and just try to pick up other good bucks. And a lot of times I won't even run cameras in those systems until I glass a good deer because I know they're coming to that food source. Like if you have a really like, let's say a 500 yard long bean field all summer and there's public land behind it and you glass that field every night and you never see a big deer in that field. In my head, I'm like, well, there's, there's probably not a big deer back there. So I'm not going to run a camera in there, but if I'm glassing, let's say I don't have a camera in there and I'm glassing a big buck. Well, I don't care what the data is. I'm going to run in there and throw a camera up just to, you know, get a little more data or, or with seeing him in there, if I know that food source is still going to be hot, I'll just take a shot on him on the opener. So kind of got those things going on in my head that time of year. It's basically get the cameras ready, you know, get my, get my archery figured out. Like I haven't shot my bow a lot this year. I've had a lot of stuff going on. So get the, get the bow shooting good, get a lot of practice in and then just, you know, glass and then wait for that camera pull. So I got a couple of questions from that one with the Oaks, right? So you already know where all of these Oak flats are. At what point are you verifying that there's going to be acorns? Like, I understand that there's, you know, when you were hunting, you want the oaks to be dropping actively during the season. And then I would assume, because you have already scouted these oak flats, you're saying, okay, well, here's the oak flats. This is what the terrain is around it. So here's where the beds are located. This is what they should be doing. But when are you like, so let's say that I choose that I'm going to go scout a new area um, or even an area that I scouted in the fall or not the fall, but the spring scouting. So January, February, I was out there, you know, right after our season closed, looking for sign, all the stuff, new area, never been in there, found some oaks, white oaks, red oaks. But I don't know this year if they're going to have acorns or not. When are you verifying that those are, you need to put some time in there? Are you just dropping a camera in June or whenever you get out there and then checking it at the season? Or how are you going about that? So I always plan my routes when I'm pulling the cameras in these systems based on verifying food sources. So. I try not to intrude in the bedding that time of year, but I will intrude into the food sources, even if they're like, let's say a hundred yards away. Like I want to, I'll, I'll check my camera and I'll make a loop up into like those white oak flats. And if I get close and I see squirrels all over the place, I'm talking like mid September, just pulled the camera. Let's say, man, there's a, there's a giant on this camera. Well, what's he doing? Go up in there. And I'm like, okay, this white oak flat is actively dropping the squirrels on it. There's some rubs popping up little rubs. There's a lot of deer crap all over the place. Like this is going to be hot. So like I'll verify that. And then as I'm walking out, I'm like, okay, I know there's a red oak flat over here and I'll go over. Okay. The reds aren't dropping yet, but I look up in the trees and glass and yeah, it's loaded with reds. Like they're going to be dropping after the whites. So if you don't kill that deer on the white oak flat, just know this red oak flat's hot. So that's, 
that's kind of what I'm trying to figure out. And one thing that I'm working on is trying to figure out like the cycles of the oaks. I've heard a lot of talk and I've talked about it in my podcast a little bit of like these three-year patterns or five-year patterns for acorns, like red and whites. And to be honest with you, I have no pattern at all on when they're going to be hot or not. And so for me, I actually have to go verify that they're good. Like I can't, I can't tell you, you know, in 2020, this white oak flat was hot and it's a three-year cycle. So this year it's going to be good because I could be totally wrong. Like, I don't know. I, I, maybe there's a way to figure that out. I'm not the guy that knows that. So for me, it's, it's actually going in there when I'm pulling my cameras and verifying they're hot or not. And I mean, I, I've killed deer without that verification, but I'm at the point now where I really like to have it, especially in Ohio, because a lot of these systems are really tight systems. Like they're not, they're not like a mile long drainage. They're like, you know, a couple hundred yards sometimes, maybe up to like a half mile. And it's very easy for the deer to just hop over the backside in a totally different system with good bedding over there and be feeding on a different flat. So if you don't have that real time data, you could be a mile out of the game and you know, it, it shifts so fast too. So, so yeah, I definitely check it when I'm checking my cameras. And then as I'm hunting, that's always one of the things going on in my head. I'm scouting my way in, even on opening day. You know, like let's say I pull the camera a week before opening day. Okay, the buck I want to go after is there. On my way in, like I'm still verifying hot food sources, but I'm also careful because I don't like, I'm not going to set up on the first hot oak flat I see because if I'm, if I'm a half mile from bedding, right? Because the one I'm after is only a hundred yards from the bedding. But on the flip side, if you walk past the hot one and you go to the one that you think's hot and it's not hot, but it was hot a week ago, it's all dried up now. You might've walked past the deer you're after. So it's this constant evolution, but I'm always, I would say from camera pull on throughout season, that is like the number one priority I have in my head is active food sources. That's the biggest thing going on for me. I hate this conversation. Um, and I hate it because like, I'm thinking back in my head is like, it's like, oh yeah, there's oaks, but I don't ever, everybody talks about like all this active oak flat or all this stuff. And like, I can think of a couple of deer that I've killed, like in the exact same scenario. The first deer that I ever killed out of a saddle was, I did not hear the deer coming in. I was actually, the first time I'd sat in this tree, this stand, it was one of these deals where Frank told me, he's like, go down this trail, go over here, take a right. You'll see a tree that looks like a snake and then go over and there's a cedar tree. And then literally that's what it was. So go get set up in the dark and I was facing the wrong way. And I didn't hear the deer in there behind me because the acorns were so loud. The squirrels were so loud and like I videoed it and you can just, all it is that you can't hear anything. Cause it's just acorns just doom, 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 just falling everywhere. And then I think of like another spot that I've hunted a couple times. It's the one uh, that we, uh, we talked about the last time that, that I had you on here, like where I just want to go in there and kill a buck because I've got them on camera. I know they're in there and I've been in there and I could have killed uh, a couple of does, but I was doing more of like an observation sit, but I've sat in there or I've walked past, like you come up this ridge and same thing and squirrels everywhere. Acorns just raining down, but the scrapes are over here. The 
the travel route and all the rubs are over here. And I think that that's one of those cases where it's like, you probably should have just set up right there because that's where it's all happening. And I can think of like, you know, a, a handful of other times where you're in there, but I think as novices, I guess we are always faced with this conversation in our head. And it sounds like you are too, but it's like, this is the spot where I wanted to go. And I think when you listen to like the Dan Infaults, he says, well, I don't usually tell anybody where I'm going, not because I don't want them to know where I'm going, but I never end up hunting where I started because you go and follow whatever the sign tells you. And I think there's so many of us that have a problem with the, the podcast cliche of the hot sign and understanding like when to hunt the hunt the hot sign what's the hot sign and what is really truly important is it that's that's where all the buck sign is like that's where i think they're bedded this is where they're feeding there's too much open area it's so difficult so for the guy um i guess in in my head and i this is not a um uh an ass kissing like scenario but there's lots of times where i'm in the woods and i'm walking through and i get somewhere and i sit there and i'll stand there for 10 minutes and i'm like okay so i've had all these conversations like what would jake bush do here like what does he think what does andy may like what would he do and i go through the list of guys that i respect as as hunters not necessarily from uh like oh these guys just they only kill big bucks, but they do it consistently and they talk about this decision-making. So who are the guys that are in your head, like guiding you to make those decisions? Oh, I've got a long list. <laughs> uh, I would start out, I mean, Dan Infault for sure. Like I remember when I started this whole thing, uh, he was a big source of information. I've taken a lot of what he said and tried to evolve it into my own thing. So yeah, funny story. I was, I'm going to, I'm going to go over on a, down a rabbit hole real quick. We'll circle back. But I remember when I first found out who Dan was, I was real ate up with it. I'm watching all his videos and listening to podcasts and everything. And I went out and I've had a marsh by my house and I had never hunted this specific one because everybody thought it was junk and went out and I scouted it and it had a old road bed that went through and it's kind of brushy. And I just remember running down that road bed, singing that Dan Infall intro in his, in his <laughs> DVDs, you know, like, and, uh, I was just having a blast, man. I was out there just loving life. But, uh, but yeah, Dan's one of them for sure. Andy May is way up there. Andy is right at the top of my list. Uh, my buddy, Ethan Askew, he's an absolute killer and very analytical. Cody Schley, I, I had him on the podcast. He's a guy that really look up to a lot. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I could, I could go on and on forever, man, but there's like Heath Cisco, Justin Hollinsworth. I, I've got a huge list of guys. Um, and I've, I've taken a little bit from all of them and I've talked about that decision-making process. Another really good guy is Nathan Kalen. Nathan's a very, you know, decision-based hunter and he's a very, he's just surgical and he's, he's, he's one of the best hunters I know. So yeah, I take a little bit from all of them. Um, 
And I do the same thing. I stand in those spots and I'll, it, it all goes through my head. You got like this formula going, right? Like it's like the guy on the chalkboard with all the different numbers and letters and algorithms and everything else. So. Yeah. It's funny that you mentioned Nathan Killen. I don't think I've had him on the podcast. We talked to him uh, doing the vitals. And one of the things that I took away from him is he says that like a four or five year old deer is a completely different animal. And he talks about even more of that like micro sign because you've got, this is where all the deer go. And then this is where the bucks go. And then everybody I've ever met has had a situation. If you've, if you've ever encountered like a big deer or that one deer that like haunts you or whatever, maybe not you, maybe when you were younger, um, but you'll be sitting there and you'll be watching some deer and you'll be looking at maybe a buck or something and you're getting all excited and you're like, okay, you know, two-year-old, three-year-old buck, something like that. And then for whatever reason, you look over there and then there's that just giant standing there and he's in the right spot to wind you, to pick up the movement. And you don't know how, you don't know when he got there. You don't know when. And that's the deer that Nathan Killen talks about. Like that's the that's the level of like, he's like, you need to be in that spot. You need to think like that animal. You don't need to hunt those other ones because I don't want to kill those other ones. Right. That's, that's a whole nother level of, of thinking. So yeah, I think you're right there. Yeah. And that's, that's a great point. To be honest with you, 2020, that happened to me. I've talked about the big typical, I think on your podcast, actually, we've talked about it and that deer was hitting a scrape all summer and he was very consistent. And I was like, I knew the the food source was hot. Everything was lining up perfect. And I went in to try to kill him and didn't recognize that there was a wind shift that day. And the, let me think here, two days prior, I was in that same system, a little, a little bit different. Like I stage hunted my way in there back to that final hub. Like I worked in the major and then I got up in the minor hubs and the first day down in the major, like that was a very hot activity area. Like there was every day that I sat there, I saw multiple deer. Uh, opening day, I passed uh, what he ended up being 146. He got shot and died in there, but it was a 146. I passed at seven yards because I was after that one specific deer and uh, finally got back up in that micro system. And I had a little buck come down. I had that doe come down doing deer things, right? Coming right through the hub, doing exactly what they should. And I'm sitting up there. I'm like, man, this deer is smoked. Like I know he's in here right now. I see the track in the scrape and the pee in the scrape from this morning headed that direction. That deer's up in that bed and he was up in that bed, but he didn't come down until that wind switched on me. And we had a forecasted wind switch from uh, Southwest to a dead East and I accessed from the East. So if you're, you know, thinking about that, all of a sudden the wind is hitting me in the back of the head as I'm looking at that deer. And I hear him get up and thrash around in the bush and he got stuck. And I've told that story how he had, the, you know, a bush on his antlers and he was ra- trying to just rake his head out of it. And I'm, I'm shaking like a leaf and felt that wind hit the back of my neck. And the other deer at 30, he's at 60 coming straight at me. And that wind hit him right in the nose. And I just watched him pick his head up and he was just, he snorted at me 200 times as he ran off. I mean, it was, it haunts me still. It really does. <laughs> Never. Never heard what happened to that deer. Never found an antler off him. I found tons of antlers in there. He's just a ghost and he's gone and it just eats me up. 
<laughs> so back to kind of what we were talking about before, as far as things to do in the summer, glassing, right? So yeah. I've done over the last few years, a bunch of glassing on some deer. It, it proved to be uh, how, how poor of a hunter I am uh, last year. Uh, I had all these deer. I saw all these deer and, you know, so did everybody else, but I had opportunity um, to, to kill some deer on opening day. And uh, same thing. I was watching other deer and these deer snuck in behind me, but they did exactly what I was supposed to do. They just didn't do what all the other deer were, were, had done that day. So I just assumed that that's what they were going to do. They didn't, they, they did, they read the script and I wasn't paying attention. Um, but outside of like kind of what you're talking about. And it's funny when you mentioned that, that, uh, quote unquote hypothetical bean field, like I can picture a spot that I know that we've both hunted that, that lays out similar to that. When you're glassing private property near and around uh, where you hunt, and I think this is where people who don't think like this, or especially people that are new to public land hunting, you're like, oh, well, that's private. It doesn't, it's not going to help me. How are you using that information? So, and let's, let's remove the, the hills of Ohio, right? So let's say you were like when you came up to Michigan or, you know, you were somewhere in Indiana, just wherever Kentucky, I mean, Kentucky is pretty hilly, probably where you guys went, um, by design, that's where you know how to kill a big deer, right? But let's say that you're you're in relatively flat maybe some some of the swamp type stuff and you're you're looking at these cornfields bean fields whatever you're glassing up these big deer on private and there's public in the area how are you using that information i mean you verify that there's a big deer that you'd like to kill the layman or the Regular guy would say, oh, it must be nice to be that guy because he can hunt that bean field or he has access to that. What does that mean to you? So typically, if I'm glassing an area, it's because I can hunt nearby. And like a lot of times you'll see the private, like the ag will be private and then the woodlots or anything behind that will be public. That's something I focus on a lot. And the reason being is it's efficient to glass those areas. Like that's, they might not hold the most mature deer year after year, but it's very efficient to drive through there a couple times in summer on cold front nights and glass that bean field. And if a good one pops up, you're like, Hey, there's a good one there. And I didn't have to do any legwork to find that deer. Like he's there. And so for me, it's, I'm mainly glassing areas that I've scouted nearby. And I have, I'm pretty intimate with the areas nearby. So I've looked for beds. I've looked for all that stuff. Um, I'm, it, it depends on what time of year I'm glassing, what my exact thought process is going to be. But if it's in the summertime, I'm, if I don't have a camera back there, like where I can hunt, I'm going to go put some cameras back there. There's, there's a lot of different things I'm thinking about though. Like if it's a bean field, for example, 
I'm looking at that bean field and saying, okay, right now it's hot. It's July. It's going to turn brown and it's going to be, it's not going to be the preferred food source if a white oak flat that I already know is back in those woods gets hot. So for me, it's an anticipation thing in the summertime. I'm anticipating a lot of the deer that are coming out in the fields, not coming out in the fields during season. And that's not always the case. So take that with a grain of salt. Depends on where you're at. There's a thousand factors that matter there. I've killed a lot of deer on fields. But if you have the right acorns nearby, you can anticipate a shift pretty well. And then you can take that historical data year after year and kind of play that. Like, you know, I'll put cameras out in june or july in some of the areas that i'm that we're kind of talking about and i know that i won't have a picture of a good deer until late august or early september when the acorns start dropping and i'll just let that camera soak it's just in there the legwork's done you know what it might be a year where the acorns don't drop and i wasted that camera and burned the camera that's fine but if those acorns get hot i already have a camera in there i only have to intrude one like I can drive through in glass and say, okay, there's a good deer in there and then go pull that camera. Well, hey, that acorn flat's hot and yeah, he's he's already back in here. So I'm anticipating that shift a lot. I don't get discouraged if the deer are on private and fields because I know that A, pressure, B, you know, food sources shifting are going to move those deer around. So that's something that I focus on a lot. Uh, I've seen the deer travel up to, I mean, I've had specific bucks that I've glassed and had on video with very like identifiable features pop up on a white oak flat a mile and a half, two miles away. And they were just out to the nearest bean field. Like they traveled two miles in the summer to go to a bean field. And then they shifted all the way back up in the, in the hub they wanted to be in come season. So it's something I focus on a lot. If it's in season, it can be a little bit difficult. It can be different because if they're in a field in season, it's probably a pretty decent food source or it's like a a rut situation. You know, if they're on like, let's say an alfalfa field in mid-October and it's hot, well, there might not be a whole lot you can do. It depends on proximity to where you can hunt. So it just, it's going to be very situational there as well. But I guess what I'm asking, and and you kind of went back and forth on it there, is how close does the the public have to be. I mean, I know you said you, you, you've seen them pop up like a mile and a half. How is it just a matter of like knowing the area and where the bedding is on that public? Or is it that there's a deer? I mean, I guess how far is too far away. And when you say like the private butts up to the wood lot, you know, in our, and in my head, I'm like, okay, well, that's the line. I think about, you know, uh, for whatever reason, I've been looking at a lot of Kansas property right now (laughs) and looking and saying, okay, well, there's a bunch of fields and then there's some, you know, walk-in or or whatever, where that's a very cut and dried line. But then there's a spot here um, near where I hunt, where I've seen, you know, big bucks in this field, multiple big bucks. There is public right adjacent to it but then on the back side of that there's probably you know two to five hundred yards of private woods and then it goes into so it's like where how far is too far and how close is too close you know 
I don't think there's a too close necessarily. It's all about access at that point. Like, can you get in there and cut off that deer going to the food source? And like, can you walk? I'm uh, I don't like hugging the property lines. I'll stay, I'll try to stay as far away as I can based on terrain. But can I be like, let's say a hundred yards away from the property line and walk in on a good access and not bump the deer and then J hook in on where their beds are at. And that's something I talk about a lot is a lot of the, the corners of the public seem to hold like those systems typically from what I've seen hold some of the biggest deer because they just don't get a ton of pressure in there. Like people are either a, they don't have like digital mapping or B they don't want to put the legwork in or it's just overlooked, but like they don't pressure those a whole lot. And so like, if you can find a way to get in there and access that spot and catch that deer coming off beds down, like being wind-based or whatever sort of bedding you have, and traveling to that food source, it's a very deadly tactic. It's just hard to pull off sometimes, especially if it's, I would say too close is if they can, if they can see where you need to set up or like if they can see the the food source, like a field, it's going to be pretty difficult to get in there. And I might think a little differently, but in general, a lot of the ones that I hunt or I would say, I would say I have one that I know of a bed that's probably 110, 120 yards from a from a private field and that's too close for me i just don't want to get in between that that like could i pull it off probably am i going to be hugging the line yeah and i just don't feel right about that so i'm not going to do that but i have systems where the deer bedded like let's see 200 yards away or 300 yards away and i can pull that off and i feel good about that and i can just j hook in and set up on them now as far as maximum distance depends on the time of year too if it's early season if it's not early season if it's summertime and it's a bean field or a good alfalfa field and i glass a deer like i absolutely believe that in the right setting some of these big woods deer will travel three four miles to go to an ag field like if it's a hot bean field and you you glass the field and there's 50 deer in that field those 50 deer aren't living there all year like they're dispersing once that food source dries up and i've seen them travel a long ways and even in season, in season, like we've hunted very similar areas. You know, some of the areas I'm talking about, I've seen deer travel like late season last year, for instance, I, I found one of the only active food sources in the woods. Like we didn't have, we, we barely had any food at all last year. Like acorns were so sparse. We barely had any whites or reds or chestnut oaks or anything. And I found a good food source and that deer was bedded back like one hub system over just cover based. Like there was no cover on any of the ridges that were early season bedding. And he was traveling. It's what took me so long to find him. It's the deer I chased after right up until he shed on me. I had him at 15 yards. It took me forever to find him because I didn't believe he was going that far. He was going like really close to like a mile and a half to a mile and three quarters every single night and morning. He would travel that distance late season. It was it was just what he did. Like he want, he felt comfortable betting in a very specific spot and he would make the, after dark, he would make this big, long travel route and I popped all my cameras up and every night, like every day I'd go back in and I'd check those cameras and this deer didn't care about my boot scent or anything. Like he would consistently be on those cameras like five to 15 minutes after dark. And I'd go in and check him and I'm like, man, he's right here. Like what is happening? And I just could not get on him. And finally, 
I, I would push further and further and further. And finally I caught him in daylight. It's like, Oh, I, I got you. I know where you're at. And then I went in there and like, he shut out on me. So, but yeah, I, I would say it's probably a lot further than most people think it is. In in that scenario, how do you pick where to set up? I mean, your anecdote there is, is a great information on, how far they can travel, but you know, there's the guy that says, well, you just need to get between bed and food. And if you know where they're bedding, but if it's, if it's a mile or if it, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter if it's a three quarters of a mile, half a mile, a quarter of a mile. That's a lot of time depending on when he gets up. So it's, that's where it's like when you walk in and you say, well, do I set up here? Do I set up there? What is it that's making that decision for you? That is like the ultimate question <laughs> right there. That's when, when you figure that one out, call me and we'll, we, we figured something out. Um, it, it's a very difficult question for me. I would say that the number one thing that I'm paying attention to throughout season on my setups is going to be going to be access more than anything else. It's, it's access into an area that I think I have the potential of catching that deer in daylight. And it's a lot easier said than done. This is, I'm no expert at this. And this is why it took me so long to find that deer and finally get on them last year. And so I'll give you two different examples. So early season 2021, I knew of a buck bedded on leeward slope for a North wind. It was South facing slope. And I knew that I had to get within 150 yards of the bed he was going to be in. But I, even after I got to that point, this was a two, a little bit over a two mile access at about the mile and a quarter mark, mile and a half mark. I had to be about 150 yards from his bed, but the way this land laid out, I had to continue down the ridge because it was cliffed out and I had to make this big long loop and then J hook back up the drainage that he was going to be dumping down into. And so there, I mean... I knew that I had to be pretty close, but I was a lot closer to him before, before I was even set up like on my access. And so that was the reason that I was able to pull that off. It was cover based. It was a very thick area. It was full of green briar. Um, the, the one thing that I continue to say more and more now, and it goes against the norm quite a bit, but like, I always hear that like big mature deer love cover. And my thing is big mature deer yes they love cover but cover is what can get them killed especially if you're a good hunter because it allows you to have the access you need into those spots so that's something that i pay a lot of attention to is the thicker areas if you have the right gear if you really take your time and you focus on not making noise both with your access and your setup you can get really close to a deer in a thick area like i don't think it's unreasonable to be within 50 yards of a deer if it's thick enough at all as long as you have everything taped up and you're not cracking sticks and you're waiting for the wind to blow before you take a step or like for squirrels to chatter for anything at all, you know, going on a windy day, for example. So cover makes it easy. So the other example I have for you is late season last year, what I was just telling you about that area, these bucks were bedded up on top of a ridge and the reason, like before I knew exactly where the bed was, I knew of a lot of good bedding in there and it, well, it all set up really good for like a Southwest wind, all leeward bedding. 
those deer, if they were bedded in the beds that they could have potentially been in, they had me busted the minute I walked. Like, let's say there's a ridge that runs north-south. There's a bunch of points that jut out towards the east. For me to access, I have to go around like three or four different east-facing points right on the edge of them while not going on private. Like, I can't go down in the bottom and run the creek because it's private. I have to stay up on the ridges. So, I'm like picking an elevation that's on the public and I'm circling the front of these ridges, the eastern facing ridges. So, I go around the three of them. As soon as I drop down in the bottom that that deer's dumping into, he's got me. He had me figured out immediately. He's looking at me because there's no cover. Now, if that was early season, that deer's dead because he can't see me get in there. But when it was cold, you know, it's 10 degrees out, 15 degrees out, the leaves are crunchy. I mean, I could hear. I bumped a deer one day and I could hear that deer running like four or 500 yards away. And I remember thinking to myself, there's no way you're going to get within shootable distance of a deer right now. There's, you would have to start your access at 8 a.m. for a 4 p.m. setup and take one step every 20 minutes. Like that is literally the only way that I'm going to get in there and pull that out. So I just, I remember thinking like access, access, access. How can I get to this deer? Like what can, what is, how can I possibly pull this off? And that's why I took so much time getting all the way back in there because like I would get to a point and I would hunt that specific bed and the way that I could access that spot and he wasn't there. I'm like, okay, I'm going to go one more and go back another bed, but I got to access it the right way and I can't overly intrude. I can't just bust all the way back through there because if he is in that bed, he's got me. So I just had to like stage hunt based on access until I crossed off that bed, if that makes sense. And then when I finally figured out what Betty was in, there was no way that I could access that spot and kill that deer in the afternoon because he's already bedded there. I have to walk the spine of a ridge to get in there. A, there's no cover and it's crunchy and there's no wind at all the last three or four days of season. So I need to be able to get in there somehow. The only thing I came up with in my head was go in at three in the morning and sit there all day waiting on him to come through in the afternoon. I knew he made a big loop, like his J-hook didn't make a lot of sense to kill him in the morning because he'd stay low and it was really thick by the bedding area. And I just, like, I would have had like a, I'd have like, okay, I have one shooting lane at five yards and that's the only shot I have. So for me, it really wasn't an option. And I'm, I'm an afternoon guy, like I love afternoons. So what I did is I decided, okay, if I get to this spot, I know that he's daylighting here. I have him on camera daylighting here. If I get to this spot in the morning, maybe he messes up and comes through and I kill him. But if not, I'm going to sit in this tree until 10. I'm going to get down midday, take all the clothes that I brought in, cover up and just try to survive for the next four hours and then climb back up the tree and see if I can kill him. And I did that three days in a row. I mean, I was maybe, maybe three hours of sleep a night, hour and a half drive both ways and all day in the tree. And I had him at, 15 yards that last day, the the plan worked perfectly. He just lost his antlers the night before. So it like, that was like, so out of the box. You know what I mean? I was just like thinking so far out of the box. So to answer your question for me, it's really based on how close I think I can get without bumping him. And it sounds really simple, but I hope those examples kind of give you like a deep dive of what actually goes on to try to determine that. Do you think, I mean, if you if you look at it like visually just from from any 
from any side of it, there's there's a reason that hunting closer to the bed is better because there's so many trails, so many rabbit holes, so many different ways that this deer could go before he ends up at the food source. Do you think most people focus more on hunting on the food source because that's where they see the deer or that's where the sign is what rather than going the extra mile to, to hunting the beds? I 100% do. And I don't necessarily think that's the wrong way to be. It depends on the situation. Like I said, I've, I've killed a lot of deer on food sources. Like in New York, that was my biggest tactic. It was hill country mixed with ag. And I had the ability to just glass all the time. And I would glass up deer three or four days in a row before season. And I'd go in and strike just based on glassing alone. So I think that there's definitely a place for that. I think that, yeah, most, I would say that the the majority of people that I talk to, at least before they started to get into like learning about mobile hunting and podcasts and stuff, that was definitely the way that they hunted as it was mine for a long time before I understood betting. And I, I think that you need to be like, if there's any advice to be taken there from what I've learned from myself, it's you need to be as aggressive as necessary to put yourself in position to kill the deer. I don't think that if a deer is showing up on a field that it really makes a whole lot of sense to just bypass that and dive in and hunt 20 yards from the bed when you could kill him a half mile away because he's acting dumb. Like, I think that there's like sit on the field and then if you mess up, you might still have a chance on the bed. Normally the bed is like, that's the aggressive move and it might be a one-time thing. But I do feel like when you really get dialed with this system, when you really get good with determining your food sources, with figuring out the active food sources and kind of how the deer like utilize the different bedding based on that, and then the specific routes they're taking, you can really become, I think it's the, I think it's the best way to become extremely efficient early season specifically is just striking on the bed. Because like you said, and we showcase this really well in the, the Greg Litzinger uh, in session video, like he shows a buck coming out of the marsh and it hits a spot and he's like, I got to kill the deer here because right after this, that buck has four trails and those four turn into eight and those eight turn into 16 and it compounds. And I could hunt this spot 30 days in a row and he might not walk down the trail that I need to kill him on. So like, I need to kill him at the focal point. And that focal point is generally, I would say the majority of the time, the closer to the bedding you are, the the easier it is to narrow down on that focal point. So one thing with like the summer patterning these deer and taking inventory and, and all of that, we talk about often early season bachelor groups and bucks. And then when their testosterone gets up, that's when they break up and they go their separate ways and they come out of pattern. But from winter where all these deer are just kind of all almost herded up, you know, depending on if you're in the UP, they are herded up. Um, But they're all kind of going to the same food sources. They're all kind of, you find concentrated sign in the same areas. Um, And then to the summer, it, when, when do they go back to their normal doe family groups or or whatever? 
Because I, it, to me, that would seem like something that would be difficult running all these cameras or checking all these cameras or seeing, getting any usable information throughout the summer, unless it's just simply trying to locate a target. Yeah. So you're kind of asking how long that Intel that you gain in the summer is usable, like is very as useful for actual hunting season for, for deer in the area. Even. Yeah. So once again, it's super situational and it really depends on where you're at in the country. And I can say that my experience with like hills mixed with ag or even a little mountains mixed with ag, it seems like I normally get a very similar pat. like, okay, so you'll have the summer pattern and if they're coming to an, like an ag field, for example, and you have a really bad acorn year, that ag pattern for me has lasted a little bit longer. You know, like that ag pattern might go into season a little bit for me. And there's obviously like always going to be different circumstances that can change all this, but that's typically what I see. And then if I have an acorn shift, typically I'll see that acorn shift in the areas I've hunted. So let's say New York through Ohio for early season, I'll see that shift generally like the second week of September on, and that'll change what the deer are doing quite a bit, which is why I wait until that time frame to pull my cameras. A lot of times they'll be on a summer pattern, which is why we're glassing some of these private bean fields. We're anticipating that shift, but they'll be on a summer pattern and then the acorns drop and they'll shift that like mid-September range. So the thing I always tell people like that are getting into running a lot of cameras and stuff like that and trying to use that data to be efficient early season is don't pull your cameras too soon because you're worried about intruding on that area like closer to season. And you can, I mean, it's, it's your choice, but I don't anyways, because if I pull them too soon and I don't catch the shift, like, let's say I go in and I check my cameras that have been out since July, September 3rd, right? I go into my best spot and I check those cameras September 3rd. I check them September 3rd and there's not a single buck on that camera because he's still on the cornfield a mile away and the white oaks haven't dropped yet. So I pull that camera, I deem there's not a good deer in the area. Two days later, the cornfield gets cut and all of a sudden the white oaks are dropping in that ridge system. Well, guess what? That big buck's right where you wanted him and you know everything about how to kill him there, but you missed out because you pulled your cameras too soon. So I think that there's, this is one of the things, again, it's like the evolution of a bow hunter that it's going to shift back and forth throughout my, the rest of my life. I know it will. Like I'll, I'll continue to debate this with myself and change my tactics around it. But for me, I wait until I, like I pull my best spot, the cameras in the best spot as close to season as possible. So September 5th, if I have 50 cameras, I'll pull like I'll, I'll rank them one through 50 and I'll pull number 50 and then I'll work my way down. And when I get about a week out of season is when I like pulling my best camera because I have the most real-time intel of that spot. It's going to tell me what's really going on in there at that moment. And I could be completely wrong and pull the wrong one and I should have pulled the other one last. You know what I mean? So it shifts a lot. But for me, I would rather have the intel than worry about pressuring the deer. Like if I don't have the intel that I need, I need to figure out how to get that intel and pressuring the deer doesn't matter to me at that point. So... For me, I will take putting my boot scent in there and I'm very specific with my cameras. Like I, 
I hang my cameras in areas that I don't have to cross a lot of trails. A lot of times, like if I'm running them on a hub scrape, typically you'll have a creek and I'll use the creek for access and I'll put the camera like right on the edge of the creek. So I don't even never have to step up where the deer are going to be traveling. Like I find ways to get creative with setting cameras and pulling cameras so I don't have to overly intrude. But I have no issue at all, and I've done it multiple times, pulling a camera a day or two before I kill a deer in that spot. Like a day or two before season, I go in, he's there, and I go back and I kill him. And it had, in my opinion, no effect on that deer. So for me, that's what I like to do. Can you go wrong? You can absolutely go wrong doing that. You can overly intrude. You can, he could see you pull the camera if the bed is overlooking that like there's all these factors that go into it that's that's kind of my strategy i can see that it's it just seems so simple <laughs> i mean it, like just the 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 deer you know like zach farenbaugh he says we give them way too much credit and I, th- I think there's really some credence to that until you get into the giants or that those four or five year old uh, deer that are that are just different. Um, but the the situational the the different types of tactics, the different areas, the different terrains. That's why I love like following along with you with Andy May, like guys that can go here, go there and get on deer and, and kill deer and figure it out in that, in that real time, as well as being able to use all of this stuff. So with all of these out of state scouting uh, trips that you've done, is that different for you? So when you, when you killed in Kansas, had you been out to Kansas? Did you take a scouting trip out there? Um, you know, hunting out of state when you, when you hunted Michigan, did you scout Michigan, um, beforehand? And again, back to that, uh, change in, uh, occupation. How do you think that that's going to affect you like positive, positively or negatively? We talked a little bit before the podcast about, how I like a podcast to be like almost like in real time because of like the pressure to make sure that you have, you know, everything is relevant. Do you think you can go into like one of those out of state hunts with like too much information where you're like, well, I was already here. We scouted this. I have to go there. Cause there was the sign was there from last year. Absolutely. I think you definitely can. I think scouting can lead you astray big time. Uh, Kansas and Michigan, both I had never previously scouted. And I kind of like that for out of state trips because a lot of the scouting, like it's so hard to, you can find a good system, but it's so hard to determine exactly what time of year the deer were there. And on an out of state trip, you've got like, let's, let's say you're really lucky. You've got 10 days. Well, okay. What 10 days are you going to take? You're going to take the first 10 days in November. That's awesome. But all the sign that you found in that area scouting it last spring was from October 1 when the oak flat was hot. Or are you going to go October 1? Well, that's great, but it's rut sign that you found. So like you get in this, it can definitely lead you astray. And so like one thing I try to do on out-of-state hunts is stay, I try to stay very in the moment with them. I've just started really diving into scouting out-of-state 
areas this year. And I think the only thing that's really going to give me is I'm not looking for kill trees when I'm scouting out of state. I'm not looking for anything like that. Like I'm looking for the best area that I can find for deer. Like what is just the best area I can find? I'm not after a giant out of state. Like that would change the game quite a bit for me. Like I want to kill a good deer out of state. So like, let me just find deer and let me find a lack of pressure and some good sign and some good setups for different time of year. Like if I have a hub that has, I find a hub in a different state that's got a bunch of clear cuts and it's got a bunch of food around a bunch of different, like very limited access and things like that. Like I'm excited about that spot and I'm going to, I'm going to probably go in there and try to figure out how to hunt there real time. So, yeah. So for me, it's, I, I have started scouting on a state, but I would say that I really, I, I don't want to fall in the trap of, of being crutched by that data. I think that you can, I think data can turn into a crutch if it's not relevant. So that's something I pay a lot of attention to. And I think I've, I've worked on that a lot here in Ohio because it's the same thing. You find all this good sign, you find all this stuff, and then you go out and you're like, well, this isn't anything like what I thought it would be. And then like, as I'm, I, I guess maturing, like I'm, I'm really trying to become more level-headed with this stuff and not just think like you got it all figured out. And as I'm going through this whole process in my head, I'm like, you know, like every year something changes and you don't know what you're doing that in that system now, like an area I was really intimate with in the past, all of a sudden didn't have any acorns and I had no idea what to do. So you can scout that spot all you want, but like, you're going to have to go in there and figure it out. You can only there's always going to be good information to be had. Like it's always going to be good to know where the food sources are at. It's always going to be good to know where the bedding areas are at. It's always going to be good to know like, Hey, there's ladder stands down here and the guys come in from the private and hunt this. Like that's good data. I just think that if you get too stuck on, I'm hunting this spot because it looks really good. Like you can just be in a really bad spot on an out of, on an out of state trip. So like for me, I, I go into them like, okay, I like the data that I have. I know where there's some good bedding areas. I know where there's some good food sources. I'm still going to go in on the fly and try to just dissect it and tear it apart real time and just stay, stay as mobile as possible with the game. And is that the best thing to do? I'm not sure. To be honest with you, I know that I had a lot of fun doing that on my out-of-state trips. It's just like a totally different style and it's a lot of fun for me too. So yeah, that's, that's kind of my strategy and my approach towards it. Awesome. So, uh, we can wrap this up. What, uh, what do you have in store coming up for this season? So we, we've got a lot in store to be honest with you. Um, we've got some, some awesome videos that are still on the way out. We've got a bunch of podcasts that we're going to do. June's going to be a really good month for us. And as we get into hunting season, we have actually coming in June, the, uh, the grit, our web series will be launching. That's going to be awesome. I'm really excited about that. We've got a couple of shows this summer. We're doing uh, a couple tacks. We're doing the Mobile Hunter Expos, and I'm excited for those. I'll be at all of them. So if you guys want to chat, come up, say hi, and we'll talk tactics. I'll talk your talk your head off probably. But uh, but as far as hunting goes, we're going to be going all over the place, and I'm really excited for it. I'm going to try to hit a bunch of different openers, mainly for the most part hill country. I did draw my Kansas tag, so I'm excited about that. That's going to be a lot of fun. That'll be Typically for me, late second, third week of November, I like to go out there. I like to be a little bit later than everybody else. I just, from my experience, I got there the second week, two years ago, and the pressure was just unbelievable. And I had a buddy out there that went out two days after me 
And he was like, yeah, there, I haven't seen a person like the pressure just completely dropped off that third week. So, so now it'll probably be really pressured the third week and I'll wish I was there the second week, but, um, but yeah, we'll be doing a bunch of, a bunch of different hunts and it should be a lot of fun. Awesome. Awesome. So what's your bow setup? Anything changed for this year? So I'm working on the bow setup still. We'll, uh, we'll have to get into that a little bit, no, a little bit more on the next one. <laughs> All right, Jake. So where can people find your podcast and, and when does it come out? So the podcast is Latitudes in Session. It's on all major platforms. So Apple, Spotify, um, it comes out the main episodes every Friday. And that's going to be an episode with a guest diving into somebody's specific tactics. It could be any region in the country. It could be about like very specific things. It could be kind of broad, but we, we launch those on Fridays. And then we do a, uh, a listener submitted Q&A every Monday, which is just a very short like 15 to 20 to 30 minute podcast where we just take a deep dive into a specific question and just try to you know tear that apart as much as possible and just give as much information as possible and as soon as we feel like it's drying up we just cut the show so it's kind of a cool format um but yeah we have that and then we have the in session over on youtube those have been pretty good so far we've gotten some pretty good feedback from that oh yeah the, the one with greg is tremendous like greg greg's fun he is. He's an outstanding hunter. <laughs> but uh, all right, Jake, I really appreciate it. And thanks for taking the time tonight. And, uh, you know, good luck with you. We'll, we'll be in touch. <laughs> yeah, Adam, we'll, uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for having me on, man.